0: We'll waste no time in turning in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. This morning we'll discuss the one issue that really is the source of nearly all broken and unhealed relationships. But most certainly, the singular source of healing and restoration in every broken, devastated, and destroyed relationship. Withholding forgiveness and granting forgiveness. And there's so very much confusion about the concept of forgiveness. There's even confusion with those who genuinely hold to a dear and honest devotion to the Word of God. You've heard it said, forgive and forget. Friends, that's nonsense. In fact, it makes forgiveness impossible. If I have to forget what happened to me, which is impossible, I will never forgive. The reality is that the person who has a forgiving spirit does so despite the fact that the heinous sins that have been committed against God and against him and against others are literally impossible to forgive. It's a debilitating idea, and people say, well, no, doesn't the Bible say that God forgives and forgets? No, it does not say that. What it says is that God forgives and remembers not. The point is that in God's forgiveness, when God grants forgiveness, he chooses not to hold one's sins to his account. That's the idea. This is deeply rooted in Paul's words in Second Corinthians 5.21 when he said to us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, as you heard so well last week. The work of forgiveness, the work of redemption, the work of reconciliation, the work of restoration is a work of God. God can and does accomplish that, but there will be utter and really mass confusion in the heart of the person that thinks that he somehow achieved or earned God's forgiveness, if he gives himself one sliver of credit, then he'll live a very confusing life, not only to himself, but to others. So this concept of forgiving and forgetting is erroneous. Many people will say things like, I'm working through it. I haven't yet quite been able to forgive, but I'm, I'm working on it. Utterly foreign to Scripture. That's not to say that there isn't a process by which you understand forgiveness on an increasing basis and a a process through developing humility and an increasingly low view of self and a higher view of God and a greater love for other people. It's not to say that there's not a process by which you increasingly come to the place where you are more and more and more understanding of biblical forgiveness and therefore more willing to grant it. But a person who says, you know, I'm not yet ready to forgive, I'm working on it. That is an utter willingness to choose to displace God and put yourself in his spot and do something that he wouldn't do. It's hatred. It's a very high view of self and a low view of God. Once you understand how forgiveness works and you realize God did not work through it but forgave you completely, you strive to abandon such selfish thinking I want you to start this morning by asking, what sins merit unforgiveness? It's not a trick question, but it's not an easy question to answer. What sins merit unforgiveness? What sins are there that are undeserving of forgiveness? And if you're thinking, well, all sins, you'd be right. So let's go a little further and ask the question then, what sins are there that I'm not willing to forgive in light of the fact that all sins do not merit forgiveness? Am I above others? Am I above the Lord? If I'm unwilling to forgive, then I ought to question whether or not I've been forgiven. I believe one of the clearest expressions of how an understanding of forgiveness works in a person's heart leading him to be willing to extend it to others. It is the place, it is the point at which a person realizes that his forgiveness is not something that he earned, but it was freely granted in kindness by the Lord. You see this throughout Scripture. But in Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul gives this command. It's an imperative. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so also you must forgive i am completely convinced we we do not overemphasize the doctrine of election in our church at all I don't think you can, but the reality is because it comes up everywhere, in particular with regard to the matter of forgiveness. Why would one be willing to withhold forgiveness? Well, it's very possible that he thinks he somehow obtained his place with the Lord by his own doing, rather than recalling that it is God's having chosen him, having set him apart unto holiness, unto Love that enables him to say, Well, I chose that. That's not that wasn't God's doing. It's not because God chose me. It is because I chose myself. I chose him. I chose to do this. I chose to make my life a better life. I turned over a new leaf. And therefore other people ought to turn over a new leaf. And I'm not going to extend any kind of compassion or kindness of any significant level to anybody until they earn it. And it's real friends, it's really easy for us to be critical of Roman Catholicism, and we should, because it is exclusively a works-based system. But that's cherry-picking. That's theological cherry-picking. What we should be critical is the person in the mirror that we would be willing to say, where have I withheld forgiveness with a misunderstanding of God's elective choice or a lack of willingness to display the kind of love that God has apparently displayed before me. Or maybe, on the other hand, maybe I haven't experienced that love of God, and therefore I have nothing to offer. So my, my paltry efforts to forgive others is completely rooted in their achievements, their forgivability, if you will. Some will say this uh, in their uh, refusal to grant forgiveness, but you don't understand what he did to me. You've heard that. You've probably said it. And I by no means would belittle whatever has happened to someone who, who is in that position where they would say that. And it might be true that I don't understand that, but Christ does. No sin committed against you remotely compares to the sins committed against Christ. Some will say unforgiveness and bitterness affects the one engaging in it the most. You've heard this before. People will say, well, if you would just forgive, then you'll be freed up. Well, there's a lot of truth in that, but the the idea that that person is the one most negatively affected is absolutely false. Many times people love their bitterness they love their unforgiveness it makes them it builds their self-esteem it makes them feel so much better about themselves they aren't really experiencing the the gravity the seriousness the devastation that others are experiencing you know especially think about the person who's been involved in the church for a while and he or she has arrived at the place uh, where there's this idea that you know I'm sort of the elder statesman in the church and therefore people should treat me well i have my own chair and my own parking place or you know whatever it might be, that person has, is having a, a tremendous effect especially if that person has a position of honor in any way at all in the church. he's having he or she is having a tremendous impact on others. Your bitterness doesn't just affect you, yes, it affects you and it as, as we've seen in the psalms it does affect your physical. Uh, condition, your physiology. You know, David speaks of his bones wearing down in the heat of the day. He's essentially starving spiritually, and it results in physical starvation. And, and illness often is the result of that, often. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 11. And every time we go through the Lord's table, we point that out. That Some are sick and some have died, Paul says, because you've hung on to your sin and your lack of forgiveness in some cases. So yes, to drink the cup of bitter bitterness poisons the life of the one who drinks it, but it, it's a contagious disease. And he or she will destroy a local church if it's not addressed. Some will say, well, how many is too many? And Jesus talks about that in our passage today. When you understand Jesus' perspective, you stop counting people's sins. Then there are those who consider their willingness to forgive to be a special privilege earned by those who pass the test. These folks are constantly on the lookout for someone to sin against them, in a, someone to sin against them in a way that they can justify their malice, their disdain, their contempt and their despisal of others. It's often targeted against the little ones in the church, people who think they've earned a place in the kingdom and deserve high honor look down on little children, and I mean physical, biological children, uh, but they especially look down on spiritual little ones, new Christians. You know Why is it that we assume that because of a person's in his 30s or 40s and he becomes a Christian that suddenly he ought to act like a mature Christian? It's bizarre. It's common, though, isn't it? So they look down not only on physical children, they, they disdain their conduct. they're too loud, they run around, they get in the way, they chew gum, and they, you know, leave that gum where they shouldn't. Just trying to get real with you here. And you know, of course they do things like that, and they shouldn't, but somehow people will find the ability to disdain them for that. Now transfer that reality, and you know very well how that works transfer that reality to those in the church who fancy themselves to be extremely mature, and they prove that they're not by their disdain for spiritual little ones who don't yet know the, the lingo. And I don't even like that term, but they don't understand biblical truth. This is why we pour so much effort into your lives in training you theologically in Ironman and in WOW and in 116 and in 412. You know, we just did a lesson on teaching children how to, how to handle money. Anybody know anybody with money problems? Oh, you, you neither? Me too. I've never heard of anybody having money problems. Why in the world wouldn't we start with children by teaching them how to manage funds in a way that honors the Lord? That's what we're trying to do in our discipleship series, and you'll find that there will be those that think so highly of themselves, well, I've never been in debt in my life or I've never been late on a payment or whatever, and so they just look down on others who are experiencing problems that so many of us, maybe most of us, have experienced over the years. They see themselves as superior, they're convinced of it, and therefore anyone who doesn't measure up is worthy of despisal, disdain. Three weeks ago, we looked in Matthew 18 at this reality that the hard-hearted spiritual children uh, in our midst need to be rescued so that we may rejoice in their restoration. This is the heart of the maturing believer. It's easy, uh, I think especially when you start sitting under sound, reformed theological, honestly biblical teaching, it's easy to start thinking highly of yourselves And, and candidly, friends, that's why a lot of folks disdain the more Calvinistic churches because we tend to think a little too highly of ourselves because we think that we got the theology right, why don't they? And what we ought to be thinking is just praise God for the fact that we know anything. But ultimately and foundationally, we ought to be thinking about God's grace. That's why we call them the doctrines of grace. We ought to be willing to communicate them with grace. Grace. Um, often for the wayward spiritual child, the person who's truly come to know the Lord, it's very intimidating. It's, many of you have told me this. You've come into our church and it's been very intimidating. and You feel like you, you can't say anything. And eventually you get over that. You realize people are pretty friendly and pretty loving and more willing to talk through things. But you and I must be very, very careful about how we say things you ought got to be willing to consider the fact that for some folks, this is all brand new. Two points from that sermon. I'm going to try to get to these very quickly so we can get to today's passage and, and hopefully wrap it up. Point number one, and it's there in your notes in the review section. Heaven is for those who reflect the humility of children. And I feel very much like I need to qualify this. Children are sinners. Children are conceived in sin. They're born totally depraved. So we are not somehow dismissing the reality of the condition into which all of us were born. But Jesus here uses the actual child. He points to this little child. We don't know the child's age, but it's an actual uh, narration here of a literal situation that actually happened. It's not a parable. And he's pointing to that child, and he's saying about this child that those who display the humility of a child are those who enter the kingdom of heaven. In the context of ha- been having, uh, asked, having been asked a ridiculous question, by the disciples. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus is communicating to them in such a way so as to say, you probably ought not to be thinking about which one of you is going to be the greatest. You might start thinking about whether or not you're going to be there. And he makes it very clear that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who approaches the Lord the way a child approaches life. Jesus forced a new consideration for the disciples. When he responded to the question, will you even be in the kingdom? First, you must receive me the way a child receives adults. That's all little children have the ability to do. They're completely trusting. Now, when I tell people, when you come over to our house, you can have lots of ice cream. In fact, you can have Silas's ice cream because he doesn't like ice cream. No matter how many times I say that, he will say, yes, I do. I love ice cream. He completely (laughs) believes that I'm serious. When I tell people, poor little Silas, he doesn't like ice cream. He falls for it every time, which is why I keep doing it. (laughs) Silas's first word was taco. So that's my nickname for him. He doesn't look like a taco. He doesn't smell like a taco. He certainly doesn't taste like a taco. But that's my nickname for him. And when I call him that, he almost always says, I'm not a taco. I'm a person. (laughs) I'll say, well, when you were born, you were a taco. (laughs) We have a lot of fun with that. When when, um, years ago, we told one of our kids that when he was born, he was actually a blueberry raised by wolves. Uh, In the deep woods of southwest Missouri, uh, you know, behind my mom's house. And when we adopted him, we decided to make him a kid. (laughs) Um, And, you know, they believe it until a certain age. One of my kids gives it back pretty good. (laughs) I'm sure I'll pay for this when I'm older. Children believe everything because that's all they know to do. Like we've talked about in this series, they display the reality that they need big people. Silas can't drive my truck, and he knows that. And So when I offer him the keys, he just looks at me and says, Daddy, I can't drive. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll drive. This truth about children is probably most significantly displayed by the child in the womb who does nothing but rests in the care and safety of his mother's love with an utter inability to even conceive of the possibility that he might ever experience harm. Just unimaginable. And this is why it's so alarming for those who function with a conscience that a mother might actually bring harm to that child or to any child at any stage. Matthew 19, 13, Matthew tells us, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. This is one of those instances where while we observe the disciples following him with a high degree of sacrifice and faithfulness, they have much to learn. Like you and I have much to learn. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, "Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven." He very particularly and deliberately uses that modifying term, "such." He's not talking about the theology of the, or the satiriology of children. That's a different subject. I told you last time, babies die; they go to heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about little children being members of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the the fact that they empirically display the reality of what's necessary for anyone to go to heaven. There must be a wholesale trust in the Lord that's illustrated in how a child trusts his parents and really trusts all adults. He laid his hands on them and went away. James 127 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See how James there creates a parallelism between what it is to be a Christian. You're pursuing your sanctification, as Paul says in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation. He's speaking to those who have always obeyed. Those are his terms. They've always obeyed, but work out your salvation. In other words, work on your sanctification. As you're faithful to the Lord, as you obey him, especially in the difficult things, he's going to conform you to his image. James here speaks of that same concept when he says, keep oneself unstained from the world. So he's talking about the progressive sanctification that takes place in the life of a faithful Christian, who avoids that which will be to his spiritual detriment, again, he parallels that with the necessity of ministering to little ones, physical little ones. It's pure religion to visit widows and orphans. And so Jesus uses this metaphor further. Here, you've seen, we've seen, that this is why it's such a severe eternal punishment being reserved for those who harm little children. You see this throughout the Old Testament. And sadly, it's, aban- it's completely abandoned in our culture. So Jesus uses this metaphor not only to display the necessary humility of the forgiven sinner, but the loving kindness he will grow to have for other little ones. And if he doesn't have that love and he's willing to neglect them, again, we're talking about spiritual little ones. If he's willing to neglect spiritual little ones, he is destined for eternal punishment. And so point two in your review, hell is for those who neglect spiritual children. This is intrinsically displayed in this text. Listen, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It would be better for him to die than to experience the consequence that comes with damaging young Christians. And then in verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Now, friends, don't abandon the context. The context of this passage is harming spiritual little ones. So he's not just saying it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and for you to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He's saying, deal with it. Cut off the hand. Put a stop to whatever it is that's leading to the spiritual detriment of a younger believer. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. But he also says, verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is a far different issue. On the one hand, he's talking about deliberate detrimental harm. Here, he's talking about just ignoring them as a result of despising them. That's what I talked about in the intro, this idea that because the little ones are running around the place and doing things that annoy you, you don't just avoid them, you actually despise them, and therefore you avoid them all the more. The idea is that you're willing to disciple others. Reproduce yourself in others. Friends, it's basic Christianity. This is not a theological option. We put a lot of emphasis in our church on discipleship, and this is why. And Think of it. The person who's not involved, he's not involved in investing himself in others, he's miserable. He has to acknowledge that whatever he is doing in any sort of spiritual context is clearly not resulting in anyone's spiritual better good. No matter what he's doing, otherwise, if he's neglecting little ones, Jesus says, don't despise them. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, you know this passage, faithful Christians will nurture the spiritual little one, but faithful Christians will rescue the wayward little one. That's the point here. Someone who has shown himself, albeit immature, unrefined, unpolished, clumsy, problematic, but he's shown himself to have displayed faith in Christ and he leaves the church because he found a better church or there's something that happened here that he didn't like and he treats it like a bank or a restaurant. The food used to be great there, but anymore, I don't know, one star on that one. Sorry. I'm going to go to Yelp and talk about the Anchor Bible Church because... You know, it used to be great, not anymore, you know, this new management or whatever. (laughs) Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now, remember, he's talking about the four-step process of church discipline. And So often when we think of church discipline, we simply think of the idea of what it takes to get somebody out, and really the process is to get them back. And often the complaint is, well, they didn't handle it right. You know, They went to step two instead of step one, or they spent way too much time on step one. I've told you these are present active imperatives, meaning that it's ongoing. It might mean that you pursue someone privately more than once. Back to verse 17, look at this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is why there must, on some basis, be a public expression of someone's waywardness. Why? Because we want them to feel really bad and get embarrassed. No, because we love them and they've forced our hand. They've forced us into that position. We tell it to the church. Why? Because then the church really knows what's going on. Let me ask you this. How many times, not so much in our church, but previous churches, other churches, maybe some in our church, you've looked around and you thought, where is so-and-so? I haven't seen them for like six weeks. Is that not commonplace in the modern evangelical church? It's commonplace. Why? Because so many people, and they're taught to do this, they think of the church with a consumer buffet mindset. It got to the place where, you know, it just wasn't doing it for me. You know, the music took a turn. You know, the sermons are too short. You tell it to the church... So the church knows what's going on. I mean, how many of you, if one of your kids left, wouldn't talk about it with the rest of your family? (laughs) If Dawson weren't at the dinner table, Charlotte would notice in about 10 seconds. Everyone would notice because these are critical members of our family. Our family is not our family without them. There is no better way to illustrate the reality of a local church. We love having guests, and we, we love the opportunity to help people understand what we're committed to and what that really looks like in the Bible. But at some point, guests need to say, I've decided this is my local church and associate themselves with that local church so we know who is in our family and who isn't. You know, I've mentioned this many times. First Peter 5, Peter says to the other elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. I can't shepherd every Christian in the world. And the only ones I really know how to shepherd and have the ability to shepherd along with the rest of the shepherds in our church are those who have said this is my church and I'm committed and I will serve and I will give and I will be faithful and my life is now wrapped up in this local body. That's just basic New Testament Christianity. And at times this requires confrontation. It requires a willingness to speak the truth in love in difficult circumstances. And as you remember, Paul did this with Peter. And how did Peter respond? We don't know how he responded right there on the spot when Paul was confronting him publicly. But we know that he ultimately called him his beloved brother. And he revered his teaching. And he told people to hang in there with his teaching. He says some of it's difficult to understand, but pursue it because this is truth. It's God's truth. Can you imagine? I looked out in the congregation. So what were you doing Saturday? Saturday. You know, and that's not how I would do it, by the way. But that's what happened. That's what Paul is doing. Peter. And then he addresses his sin. And how does Peter ultimately respond? With a recognition of Paul's love for him. It was for Peter's sake that he addressed his sin. He called him condemned. Do you imagine? Number of years at that point as an apostle. And despite having said in Romans 8, there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He looks Peter in the eye in front of a number of people, at least the elders. We know he's there with other elders. And he says to him, Peter, you stand condemned. Why? Because Peter had unrepentant, unconfessed sin. And he loved him enough to address it. And Peter ultimately became the one to whom Jesus said, tend my sheep. So Peter became faithful. Point number one, forgive with countless compassion for your brother's restoration. The countless mindset towards your brother's sin. It means you don't keep a record of wrongs. Now you say, well, how can you confront anybody with their sin? Because you don't forget, because you can't forget, because you know it's true. But you're not going home with your clipboard and going, well, that's 12. We'll see how far we got to go until I get to 490 right? The rabbinic tradition was to forgive three times. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? As many as seven times. And of course, Peter felt pretty good about himself, right? Because he doubled it and added one. Surely the Lord will be impressed by my willingness to forgive people more than the Pharisees would have me forgive. The real issue here was that Peter wanted to keep track. He wanted it to be a matter of keeping count. If he could count the sins committed, he could limit the number of times he'd have to suffer the burden of forgiving. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, and this is a rebuke. You don't probably feel it the way Peter felt it in the moment, but when something is so clearly opposed to what someone else has just said, it's a rebuke. Jesus said to him, I don't say seven times. He just totally contradicted him. I don't say seven times, but if you're reading the ESV, 77. If you read the NAS and I think the King James, it's 490, right? 70 times seven. Now, why is that? Why the discrepancy there? I think it's purposeful. The point is not the actual number. Hebda mekantakes is the Greek term that's translated here as 77 and in other versions as 70 times 7. The absence of clarity here is not an absence of clarity in what Jesus is saying. It's perfectly clear he's using hyperbole. Whether it's 77 or 490, it exceeds the number of times you might be sinned against. That's the point. So how many times shall I forgive? Same number as your brother's sins. There's the number. How many times shall I forgive your sins? The exact number that you commit them. Maybe plus one, right? Which is simply the idea of having the mindset that I'm going to forgive regardless what you do. In fact, the better way to think of it is to forget the numbering. Be forgiving. Extend forgiveness. Be hospitable with your forgiveness. Look to serve with your forgiving spirit. Keep no record of wrongs. Jesus was saying, Peter, don't keep count. Forgive countlessly. Forgive endlessly. In Luke 17, 1, he said to his disciples, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard if your brother sins. Rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. I mean, can you remember a time in your life where you were sinned against seven times? I suppose that's possible, but it's extremely unusual, and so the idea is keep forgiving. Let your forgiveness be ahead of the sins. Peter, as long as you keep count, you will prevent any kind of restoration for those who need to be restored. This was the problem for Lamech in Genesis 4.24, who is the reference here from which Jesus gets this idea. Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77fold. Lamech was an angry, spiteful, vengeful man. And so he was insisting on being forgiven. So he misused the whole idea. That's presumption. And as you see in Romans, the beginning of Romans 3, the idea is that the person who runs headlong into sin and assumes he's going to be forgiven engages in that presumption that proves he's not a Christian. Paul says there, they are yet condemned. Well, I know it's wrong, but it sure feels right. The person who lives with that pattern proves he's not forgiven. Lamech was angry and willing to do whatever and believe he would be forgiven. You know, to pay back evil for evil, Paul says in Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, even if you can't pronounce it. First Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and all for all people. First Peter 3.8, to sum up, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So that was point one. Forgive with countless compassion. This is a matter of compassion. It's a matter of recognizing that it's Christ's compassion upon us that leads to our ability and willingness to extend compassion to others. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and a payment be made. So this is exercising justice. The man owed him the money. He was requiring payment. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was a payment beyond one's ability to repay. And so I'm calling you here in light of the full context of this passage to forgive with Christ-like compassion, not just countless compassion. Don't just be the person who rigidly says with some sort of self-will to forgive countlessly, but recognize that this is really driven by an understanding of and a reception of Christ's countless forgiveness of you. You've experienced Christ's countless, endless, immeasurable forgiveness. You long to extend that to others. Ephesians 4:32 says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Verse 23 in our text therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants but had a change of heart. He ultimately had a change of heart why because the servant begged him and that really displays the necessary heart attitude of the unbelieving heavily debt ridden sinner who needs forgiveness he doesn't come to the table offering anything he knows he has nothing to offer he knows he's completely and immeasurably and insurmountably indebted to the master so he comes begging and that's what you and i are we're beggars That's all we have to claim, is that we cried out. This was a mammoth amount of money. Scholars have estimated to be anywhere between $6 billion and $5 trillion. But the hyperbolic idea is that it's infinite. As one little boy I used to know would say, it's a fibbating and beyond. It's Googleplex, 10 to the 100th power and more. That's the idea. It's hyperbole. The passage goes on. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about a third of a year's salary. A lot of money. A lot of money, but not insurmountable, something that certainly could be repaid. And he seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What he owed was a great deal of money. Matthew 6 verse 12, we are called to say, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. How many of you memorize that? You know, you memorize the disciples' prayer, often called the Lord's Prayer as a kid. it's clicking now for you? (laughs) Now it makes sense. Remember that if you don't, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. You have no authority to withhold forgiveness from anyone for anything ever, anytime, any consequence, any circumstance, ever no authority. And if you do, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And a skewed understanding of your spiritual condition is most often the problem. Those who deny the total depravity in which we exist pre-Christ don't think their sin is such a big deal. And therefore, when they see sins that are such a big deal, you've heard this statement before? Well, I would never do that. It's usually in reference to homosexuality. I would would never do that. You don't know that. And the very fact that you haven't is exclusively the result of God's grace in your life to protect you from that pervasive, debased mind sin. That's why. Not because you somehow have the willpower to avoid inexpressible sexual sin. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now, in the context of our passage, this is akin to telling the church. I mean, the Lord already knows. And in the parable, the master certainly had some sense for how this person would respond, so others deal with it. And they go to the master. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, you're wanting me to tell you, was this guy a believer or not? I'm sure you're thinking that. And I hate to tell you I'm not going to tell you. It's not the point of the passage. Don't let a parable be a theological treatise. Use the parable the way it's designed. Now, many commentators, many well-known and faithful and Uh, integrity-filled theologians have interpreted this one way or the other. I mean, you look at it and say, well, he was forgiven, right? The master granted him forgiveness, and then he withheld forgiveness. So he's obviously a believer. He's forgiven, right? He's been granted forgiveness. But on the other hand, he's going to experience punishment by way of having to repay the debt. So he's clearly not a believer. It's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that for those who display an unwillingness to forgive, they will be required to repay the penalty, and that is for eternity because it's unrepayable. It's too much. That's why hell is forever. You cannot repay the debt of your sin, and that's why Christ bore it on the cross. God made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this is one of the places where we get the idea of imputed righteousness. It's not yours. You didn't earn it. You often don't even display it. But imputed righteousness means that God has made a legal declaration. He has declared you righteous. It's his declaration. Then, and the more you understand this, the the more you rest in him, then, because he's made this declaration, you rest in Christ. And when someone brings an accusation to you, you point to the cross and you say, you know, you're probably right because I'm not righteous. I bear Christ's righteousness, so in your accusation against me, I welcome that. I want to hear that. I want to know more about what you think about my weakness and my failure and my inadequacies and my sin. I want to understand those things better because I need to better be conformed to the person of Christ so that he will use me to draw others to him. Uh, But but let me just affirm your bravery and your love for me and your willingness to confront me with what you've seen. Even though you may not be completely right about it, you're probably at least partially right about it. Especially if it's a little one who's scared to death but is willing to love you in that way. It's interesting that the very next topic that Jesus deals with in this sermon, this lesson on forgiveness, what it is, what it isn't, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, the very next topic is divorce. There's no mystery as to why he's He's laid the groundwork for the restoration of a marriage that's experienced no matter the sin, full restoration. What God has joined together, let no man separate. If you believe that, if you believe God joined it together, you certainly believe that you can't destroy it, no matter how bad your sin or your spouse's sin. Cory Tinboom is recorded as having had this teaching opportunity, and I want to read the story to you. She says it was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown... When we confessed our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps. in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs, "...sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbruck concentration camp where we were sent." Now he was in front of me, hands thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt, I was face to face with one of my captors. And my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, that hand came out. For all I know, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives as a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and, and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With my whole heart, For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. With her whole heart. That's the call in the passage we just looked at. That it would be done wholeheartedly. And in moments, that's impossible. Your heart's not there, so what do you do? You obey the Lord. You examine his atonement. You believe that his death absorbed the wrath of God for your doing, for your sins. It accomplished your forgiveness. You rest in that. You extend it to others. And you walk in obedience because he, in fact, destroyed death and he destroyed sin such that it won't exist in heaven. There'll be no sins. There'll be no tears. There'll be no pain. There'll be no sorrow. And so we as a church must display a foretaste of heaven in our willingness to forgive each other, especially each other. What did that man need? He didn't need somebody screaming at him or condescending to him. He needed the loving hand of Christ extended through the one against whom he had sinned immeasurably, one who wouldn't count the sins. Consider the detriment when you lack forgiveness. The detriment not only on you personally, but on the person who desperately needs restoration. People leave churches in their unforgiving state over some really, really petty issues. But others stay and create division where they could be nurturing humility, restoration, and unity. Don't lose your opportunity to be restored to those who've sinned against you for the sake of the glory of Christ. Forgive others as he forgave you. That we might be a display of the reality that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. And we trust that you would use your word to produce in us a passionate, godly, humble, holy hatred for our arrogance and our pride and our self-righteousness when we refuse to forgive And that you would expose us to that, that we'd see it for what it is. That we would love one another enough to go in private and address each other's sins, hoping to win each other over. And if we do, that we would rejoice. But if we don't, that we'd go back with one or two more. And if our brother still doesn't listen, that we would lovingly and graciously tell it to the church. That the master would be worshiped in a place of restoration. It's in his name we pray. Amen.